Father's Day weekend. Happy Father's Day Eve. We'll play it again. Anyways, but if you have your Bibles and you've got maybe the app, maybe you've got a Bible, there's Bibles under your pew, uh, there's Bibles if you look underneath your seat. Um, we're going to turn tonight to John chapter 14, verses 1 through 18. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 18. So the sermon tonight is for everybody, but just to open with a word for our fathers. Uh, I read a quote this past week. It says, the good family man is not perfect, but he's irreplaceable. And there's so much truth in that because I know for a lot of fathers, when I talk to them or I counsel them, we get so caught up in our imperfections and our failures and we become fixated on those things. But really the goal isn't perfection as much as it is to be present. You know, one of God's names in scripture is everlasting father. He's everlasting. Never leaves us, never forsakes us. He's present. And sure, he's perfect, but he's also present. And we also know that God is infinitely powerful, and yet at the same time, he's profoundly intimate. So you may never be infinitely powerful or perfect, but we can be present and we can be intimate with our families. And when you do that as a father, a mother, a parent, what you do is you pave the way for your children's relationship to come with God the Father. If we can be present and we can be intimate, we'll go a long way. Because there's a a stat in our culture, one out of three kids are growing up without a father in the home. One out of three in our country. And imagine the heartbreak that God, this God who calls himself our everlasting father, feels when he hears and sees that stat. Because, again, our earthly fathers, they're like training wheels that are supposed to get us ready for our relationship to come with God the Father. And some of them are excellent at that. Some of them aren't. Some of them are awful. And some of them are altogether absent. There's another stat. There are over 150 million orphans on the globe right now, where if you put all the orphans together and made a country, it would be the ninth biggest country in the world. Crazy stats. And we say, wow, our heart breaks for that, but think about also the people around the world, around us every day, who spiritually are orphaned, don't know God the Father. You know, may we be a church that our hearts break, and we say, wow, and we're moved by compassion for, for both the literal orphans and the spiritual orphans. Because we serve Jesus Christ who says in this passage, John 14, 1 through 18, he says, I won't leave you orphaned. And I want to read that now, John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's getting close to the cross, and he's talking to them. He basically says, look, I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised from the dead. I'm going to ascend to heaven. I'm not going to be here in physical form anymore, but I'll still be here. It's kind of confusing for the disciples. What he kind of says, well, if you dial it in, he says, you're not going to see me. In the same passage, he says, you will see me. No one else will see me. I'll be here, but I won't be here. So you can imagine for the disciples, they're sitting there like a little confused. They know he's about to pass on. And it's like a life and death game of peekaboo he's talking about here. He's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? But you look in verses 1 through 18. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. (laughs) No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. 
And Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do greater works, or excuse me, will do the same works I have done, and even greater works, because I am going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it, so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, obey my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Before we go any further tonight, let's pray. Jesus, right here in Scripture, you say that the Holy Spirit leads us, guides us in your truth. God, I pray that you would reveal truth to us tonight. Lord God, shift perspectives. Uh, Like Tara was saying in worship, whatever way we think of you, that doesn't line up with scripture, God, that doesn't line up with who you truly are, use your word tonight to to reshape that, God, to fuel our faith, fuel our hope, and fuel our trust so we can follow you closely tonight and for the rest of our days. And everybody said, amen. So do you trust me? Do you trust me? If I were to say that from the pulpit and ask, where does your mind go, you might think, well, it's a little awkward to say that from the pulpit because usually if somebody's asking if you trust them, things are about to get crazy, right? Or if somebody asks you to trust them, like, hey, just trust me, things might get a little wild right after that. But maybe if your child is like me, you hear the phrase, do you trust me, and you immediately think of Aladdin, <laughs> the movies. It's been used so many times over and over since then. I think it, if I went through the list, Blade Runner, the new movie Passengers, uh, Twilight, uh, there was another one where the pro, one of the main characters says to another character, hey, do you trust me? Do you trust me? In Aladdin, it's his tale because he says it twice. And when he says it the second time, she begins to realize, oh, it's you. But when Jesus in this passage talks about trust, what makes it telling and what makes it unique is that in John chapter 14, Jesus doesn't ask for the disciples, you know, do you trust me? Like, do you trust me? Or he doesn't ask for them to trust them. He tells them, look, you trust in God, trust also in me. He basically demands it. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. And trust also in me. And maybe you would think tonight, sure, I trust God. It's easy to say that, right? But actions speak louder than words. Like in the movie Aladdin, if when he says, do do you trust me? And she says, yeah, sure, but then walks away and doesn't take his hand. Does she really trust him? Actions speak louder than words. And if I'm honest, I like to think that I love God with all my heart, my soul, and my mind. But I often struggle with this idea of trust. And maybe you sarcastically reply, well, that sounds like a personal problem. Well, let me ask it a different way. Do you ever wrestle with worry? Do you ever struggle with stress? Do you ever feel the angst of anxiety? And I talk about things like anxiety tonight, realizing it, that there's a, a medical anxiety and a wrestling with that that's neurological. But spiritually speaking, I believe that there's a lot of people that would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I trust Jesus. But we live within a thin shell of distrust. For instance, let me paint a picture. Raj, he was running around here earlier. I have no idea where he is now. He loves pancakes. 
So Steph will make him pancakes. And if you make your kid pancakes, stacks of pancakes, multiple kids, however many, what they probably don't do is make sure to stash some away just in case there's no pancakes a week from now or days from now. Or I'm going to go take these pancakes and store them up just in case we never get pancakes again. Or they probably don't ask you about the cost of eggs and whether we'll have enough money for the ingredients so that we'll be able to have pancakes again next week. Raj just eats the eggs and loves, excuse me, the pancakes and loves the pancakes. And your kids probably do the same because this is childlike trust. Jesus talks about childlike faith. This is childlike trust, and God desires trust from us. You know, when the Israelites left Egypt, he didn't give them pancakes from heaven, but it does say that manna was a lot like bread from heaven. As they're beginning this relationship with God who brings them out of slavery and manifests himself to them through all these miracles, and they're, they're beginning this relationship, and God wants them to trust him. So he says, look, I'm going to provide for you in the desert. I'm going to give you this manna daily, but only take enough for that day. It's a test of trust that there's going to be manna the day after that. And to double down on that, he says, look, on the sixth day, gather twice as much as you normally would, because on the seventh day, I simply want you to rest. Again, it's this test of trust. God wants us to learn to trust him more and more. Why would we struggle with trust, though? We talk about orphans, and you, anytime you're talking about adoption, you hear this phrase, cycle of unmet needs. Cycle of unmet needs, where every time a young child is held, rocked, fed, spoken to, brain growth is stimulated by these needs being met. But without all this vital input, when all that is denied, literally the brain's growth is impaired. There's neurological pathways that aren't formed. And attachment and trust becomes hard down the road. So cycles of unmet need in orphans can chew up trust like a black hole would swallow a star. In orphanages, I've talked to some of these social workers that travel the world because it interests me. And, and they're like, yeah, you'll walk into an orphanage full of hundreds of babies and it'll be silent. Because they've learned if they cry, nobody's coming. They've lost any trust in anybody to come and take care of them, so they just stop crying. And it's eerily silent, and these orphanages full of all these babies. So when you adopt one, they're like, never let the baby cry out or just cry and not come. You always go. Because what you're trying to do is have met need and build trust and do it again and again and again and again. And why do I share all this? Well, it's because like Tara was sharing at the end of worship, we live in a world that leaves us with unmet needs. We're born with a need, a hunger, and a desire for a relationship, an eternal relationship that only God the Father can fill. All right, some things might fill it for a while. That new car, when you get it with a new car smell, it fills you with excitement for a little bit, but then it gets old again. All the things in this world, even relationships, they're here for a time, and then they go, but only God the Father can scratch this itch that we all have deep down in our soul eternally. Praise God, Jesus says that I'm not going to leave you orphaned. Praise God that he promises not to leave our needs unmet, and he tells us to trust. But trust can be hard. Like if you adopt a child out of an orphanage, they don't just jump into a life of attachment and trust. And we may struggle in our relationship with God to trust God the Father at all times. And if I'm honest, there's been seasons in life where I've struggled with trust. And I want to talk about two reasons for that tonight. And I always get nervous sharing from my life as if it's some universal experience. But at the same time, I believe these are common to most everybody in here. And those two reasons I struggle with trust are simply cruelty and clarity. Cruelty and clarity. And let me explain what I mean by cruelty. 
Now, sometimes I cling to this trust in God because he doesn't meet my wishes, my prayers, and my dreams. And I'm not, I'm not talking about light matters. I pray every night that Raj will sleep through the night and won't wake up. Sometimes that doesn't happen, but that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is infertility, a wife with chronic pain, a brain malformation that needs surgery, loved ones that you're praying for for healing that passed too soon. When those don't get answered, it's not just a casual shrug of the shoulders. It can seem downright cruel that those don't get answered and God doesn't say yes. What I've come to realize, though, again, it's like Tara was reading my notes during worship. I've come to realize that sometimes when he says no or withholds an answer, that those unmet dreams, they're not always unmet needs. Not always. And again, let me explain. I can remember clear as day being a sophomore in college at one of my friend's apartments and just sitting there talking about the future, talking about how cool it was going to be to have our own children, like a literal mini-me, like that being has my flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood, my DNA in it. To have your own kid, it both blew my mind and excited me. And if you fast forward about four years after that is when I met Steph. And four years after we met, we started dating. And one of the reasons I knew she was wife material for me is she wanted to be a mom just as bad, if not more, than I wanted to be a dad. So fast forward a few years later, a few miscarriages later a few trips to the doctor later, and we had questions. The typical ones when you're walking through seemingly situations that are cruel like this, how could a loving God let this happen? Why would a good God allow for this seemingly cruel situation? And I'd like to say that, that you know, tomorrow for Father's Day, I get to celebrate with Raj. We have Raj, and you could give us a choice of, of any kid in the world. We pick him 100 times over, and I'd like to say, yeah, that solved all my questions. But again, talk about Steph's health and chronic pain, and those questions remain fueled. But I'll never forget, I read this book. It's called Ruthless Trust. It's by Brennan Manning. I read it early on in my walk, some probably 12 years ago now. And it's interesting because he uses this phrase, ruthless trust, and it seems like a weird phrase because ruthless means without pity. But his point is that God calls us to a trust in him that's without self-pity, a trust that refuses to regard self-interest as the highest good in life. And he says when you can get to that point, it's a game changer. It's what he calls basically a second conversion. But when I talk about my trust, I often wouldn't qualify it as ruthless. My trust is tied to my dreams. My trust is so often tied to my wants, and if those aren't met, then sometimes my trust, it wanes. You know, I don't remember where I, where I heard it taught, but some pastor one time, he said at the heart of distrust, or specifically at the heart of anxiety, what do you see? Literally, you see an I. In the middle of the word anxiety is the letter I. And that's really what's at the heart of anxiety, worry, and distrust. This, this me at the center, where it's like, I don't know if I can, what will happen to me if, where self-preservation, self-interest, and alike are at the core of my thoughts. But again, a ruthless trust in God refuses to regard self-interest as the highest good in life. Humility. This refusal to be absorbed in self-focus, it breaks those chains. But it's also important to note, there's another aspect of humility that helps us understand the cruelties of life, and that's simply the humility to accept the fact that we're broken. We're broken by sin. We live in a broken world that's broken by sin. We're surrounded by people that are broken and are good at breaking things, like our trust. You've maybe heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people. I believe healed people heal people. 
That's what God wants to do. But we live amidst brokenness. And that's part of the understanding. But humility also comes when you read verses like Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where it says, my thoughts, this is God speaking, are nothing like your thoughts. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We can't truly understand a transcendent God, and that's certainly humbling. But in our culture, many would say that to trust in something you don't fully understand, that's foolish, it's foolhardy. But I would say to rob God of his transcendence does some dangerous things to our trust. Because what happens is we begin to project ourselves onto God. And then we begin to presume that God will do what we would do because we projected ourselves on God. And then when that doesn't line up and it doesn't happen, it leads to disappointment and ultimately leads to distrust. The notion is that if cruelties in life are meaningless to me and to you, that they must be meaningless. Again, that sows seeds of distrust. But if God is powerful enough, listen, if God is powerful enough and transcendent enough to call into question for suffering, Shouldn't he also be transcendent enough to have a higher vantage point, a higher perspective, and a reasoning that we don't have? Can't have it both ways. Look, some knows from God that makes sense with time. The fact that Steph and I couldn't have kids and it led us to start the adoption process from Ethiopia. And then that 48-hour window where it sounded like that adoption from Ethiopia was done, 48 hours later we were on this course to where we now have Raj. We realize now that that was just God directing our paths. But make no mistake, this side of the grave, there's going to be no's from God that make no sense to us, seem downright cruel, and will try to rob us of our trust. Pain, suffering, and evil's continued presence are conditions that we wrestle with in this life. C.S. Lewis admitted once that he originally rejected God because of the cruelties of his childhood. He lost his mother to cancer when he was young. So he disavowed Christianity's good God and became a self-proclaimed atheist. And we know because of his works and we know because of history that he didn't die there, that his life progressed and he found God, but that wasn't the end of his wrestling with suffering either. He wrestles in his very short book, A Grief Observed, after the cruel loss of his wife to cancer. And he wrestles with the questions we all do. How could a good God let this cruel suffering happen to somebody I love? He writes chapter after chapter in this journal, and it represents months of his life as he would write them. But at the end of the book, he says, when I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but rather a special sort of no answer. It's not the locked door. It's more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question. Like, peace, child, you don't understand then he goes on to say, heaven will solve our problems, but not, I think, by showing us subtle reconciliations between all our apparently contradictory notions. The notions will all be knocked from under our feet. We shall see that there never was any problem. It's a powerful quote, but all these questions and notions lead to my second struggle that I know I've had with trust, and that is uh, hunger for clarity. Clarity. All right, I took a, anybody ever heard of the Enneagram test? I'm probably saying it wrong. I know I said it wrong when my therapist was like, you need to take it. And I was like, I don't know what that is. But apparently it's been around for forever and it's becoming hip again. So it's like any of those personality tests. And I'm a five. So what does that mean? It means I'm what they call an investigator. And what, the, what it says, and I quote in the description of the person, is they want to possess knowledge. They want to understand the environment and have everything figured out. Bottom line, I want clarity. <laughs> 
And I don't think, regardless of what you score on this test, that I'm unique in that. We want clarity. And how many of us remain frozen in seasons of life because of the complexities of life? Because we're waiting for clarity. It's like we talked about a couple weeks ago, that passage from Proverbs. But in, in this book, Ruthless Trust, it talks about a guy named John Cavanaugh. And he wrote a book called America. Unique title, right? It's not one you're going to grab off Barnes & Noble because it's called America. But he writes, he's a theologian, he's a professor, and, and he writes about, he was having essentially a midlife crisis. I don't know how old he was, but he was having a crisis where he's like, I don't have clarity for my future. So what he did is he went to India and served in the house of the dying in Calcutta. I'm like, God, give me that midlife crisis where I travel the world and meet Mother Teresa, right? Like, give me that, because that's what happened. She eventually comes to him and says, what can I do for you? He says, pray for me. She says, for what? He says, clarity. She says, no, I won't pray for that. He says, why? And then she says these profound words. She says, clarity is the last thing you're clinging to and must let go of. In common, it is one thing that she always seemed to have. But she said, I've never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. <laughs> you know, the way of trust is the life of a follower of Christ. It's not always clarity. Bible says we live by faith, not by a clear line of sight. Again, Proverbs 4.18 4, that we preached from a few weeks ago says, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun. Our path is sometimes like the gray of the morning when everything's not black and white. We don't have a definite answer, but we move forward trusting God. If we don't have trust, if we don't have faith and, and trust in, in his goodness, then we'll remain frozen and paralyzed. To move forward, we need trust. You know, when folks said that they would follow Jesus in Luke chapter 9, he doesn't say, okay, and then give them a clear itinerary. Like when people want to go to the DR on this mission trip, I'm like, okay, here's an itinerary of what you can expect, what our days look like. Jesus says, okay, cool, you want to follow me? I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight, right? He says, I don't always know where I'm going to lay my head. It's not a step into this predetermined plan for the future. It's not cookie cutter and it's not crystal clear. Often it's a step into the undefined, it's a step into the gray, it's a step into ambiguity. And that scares me if I'm honest. Why? Because of pride and, and I, I want control. I say I want clarity, but deep down I want to know because then I can, I can control. I can't control. I can't even control my stress and worry if I'm honest. I have a hard time, right, when, when in our thought life worry can just come like waves, right? So I can't control, but I can't give consent. Look. There, there's no faith without doubt. There's no trust without worry, hope without anxiety, and there's no shame in that. If I were to tell you never worry, what you're going to do is go home and worry that you worry too much, right? <laughs> if I tell you never stress, you're going to stress the fact you stress and think, man, I stress too much. But think about it. Worry often comes like a rogue wave, one thought that just triggers it. They're not voluntary emotions we can always control, but we can't give them consent or refuse to give them consent. These faces of fear. I overcome distrust with faith properly placed. Because worry is just faith in bad outcomes. It's faith misplaced. Worry is faith in bad outcomes, but trust is faith in a good God. But it, to make a, some kind of fortune cookie couplet out of trust is dangerous because trust is big. Trust takes a lifetime. Trust is a journey. Jesus had these disciples with him for three years when he says, hey, you trust God, trust me. And still they wigged out when he died. They were shook by doubt. They were shook by distrust when he was crucified and buried. 
You know, I, we all at one point were lost and spiritually orphaned. And we grow in trust with our Heavenly Father as we live and do life with Him. You know, there's an account of a father I heard once who had adopted a, a seven year old girl out of an orphanage, and he was at his therapist who understood his situation. I believe the focus was on adoptive parents. And he was like, look, I'm struggling here because she doesn't trust me, right? She asks me the same question 100 times. She, she wants me to check on her 12 times after I put her to bed at night. He's like, I just, I just need her to trust me. The therapist looked him in the eyes and said, well, let me ask you a question. Why should she trust you? And he struggled with that because for him, he wanted trust to be a, a switch that he could flip. Like, how do I, where's the switch I flip where, like, the trust is turned on? But she was telling him, look, you had to be patient. This girl has spent seven years in an orphanage with cycles of unmet need, and it was going to take time. And he was a good father, and he began to be patient, and he began to see change. How many of you guys know we serve a good, good father? The song doesn't lie. We serve a good, good father. And it says in Psalm 103, verse 8, God the Father is compassionate, gracious, patient, and rich in love. May we be patient with ourselves as we walk this journey of trust. You know, if I could have the, the worship team come up. Again, Jesus didn't ask for trust as much as he told us to have it. But what I love is that he doesn't just demand it, he demonstrates it. He displayed trust. To the end, to the end, even on the cross, Jesus displayed Jesus, the son, displayed a heart of trust in his father. Even on the cross where we see he felt forsaken, his last words on the cross in the gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, it says, Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. Jesus showed us the life of trust. And may we adopt this prayer of trust every day of our lives. When we wake up saying, Father, I entrust my spirit I entrust my mind, I entrust my family, I entrust my career, I entrust my life, I entrust my body into your hands. God, may we learn more and more to trust in you. God, where we fight for clarity, help the prayer to change. God, give us trust. That song, it is well, it, it was in, on during pre-service prayer and it says, far be it for me to not believe even when I cannot see. God, where we fight for clarity, help us to ask for trust and realize there's no shame in that prayer that that man whose, whose child needed healing said to Jesus, I believe, but help me in my own belief. God, all our lives, God, we, we believe, but help us in our lack of trust. Help us to trust you more. Help, it to, help us to confess it with our hearts and may it set the course for our life. And we have what Brennan Manning called ruthless trust that realizes self-interest isn't the highest interest, but living our lives for your glory so that we can go to that place, it says in John 14, that you're preparing for us. But God, I pray that while we're here, we may not get all the proofs and all the answers that we want. Philip in John 14 says, hey, you show us God the Father, and problem solved, we'll believe. He didn't get that. We don't get that. But we have the example of Jesus Christ, and we have the Holy Spirit. We may not have the proofs, but we have your presence. And God, I pray that as this song we're about to sing says, that you would make us more aware of your presence. No matter what the circumstance is, whatever the season is, that we'd be able to walk in trust, and our trust wouldn't be shaken because we're aware that you're with us. 
And we be aware that you're good, almighty, sovereign, unchanging. And when we begin to trust in that, believe in that, and trust in it to where it informs our hands and informs our feet, Lord God, it, it is a game changer. God, it changes our lives. So I pray tonight as we stand and worship and close with this song, Holy Spirit, God, that just as you say in John 14, you ask us to trust you, but God, you say you're not going to leave us orphans. God, I pray that those needs we have, those prayers we've been praying, God, I don't know what the answer is going to be, whether it's a yes, a no, or a pause of silence, Lord God, that you would remind us tonight that even as we wait, you're with us in the waiting room. God, we might not have the answer we want, but we have your presence. Assure us of that tonight as we close in worship. Make us more aware of your presence, Lord God.